Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! My name is Kurt Kroon. I am a pastor here. I'm one of the pastors here. Our other pastor, Sarah, just finished up a cruise, which is very exciting. Um, so she should be Tanner when she arrives. Uh, So this morning, we are going to have some fun. Uh, I mean, my definition of fun. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, But a couple of things we want to let you know before we go into this. Um, The subject for this morning is Paul and his conversation about LGBTQ plus community. And we'll kind of talk about more of that. But within the conversation to kind of provide some context and framework for that, we're going to be talking about Caligula's rule in Rome. So if you have young children and conversations you don't think you're ready to have, uh, normally we love to have kids in service. This is just a fair warning that some of the things we're going to be talking about might be like, a, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing we want to talk about going into this is uh, in this conversation this morning, the scriptures, and we're going to kind of talk through why, they translate in the NIV to homosexuality. Uh, but we're going to talk about it within the framework of LGBTQ+, and that's the, the name we're using. I'm not ignoring IA, um, but we kind of went with the, the shortest, kind of most uh, comprehensive name we can do, because the impact of these scriptures uh, go far beyond the homosexual community. It goes to everyone within the LGBTQ+, community, and we'll, we'll talk about some of that. Uh, the other thing to, to note is, as a male as a cisgendered heterosexual male, uh, what I'm going to be sharing and talking about is all through that lens. And that's my world. That's where I grew up. Um, And so I'm going to be talking a lot about the theology of this and talking a lot about the scripture, the context, and all that. And because I really believe that all theology, not just this conversation, but all theology is kind of pointless if it isn't ultimately personal and relational. Um, We have some friends with us that we're going to do an interview and talk about how have they been impacted by these scriptures, um, specifically the ones that Paul wrote. Uh, so just so you know, that's like I see myself as I'm going to talk about Bible stuff. That's what I'm equipped to do. Uh, and then I'm going to stop there. <laughs> so uh, this whole message series, if this is your first time and you missed a couple of weeks, here's what we're doing. Uh, I started noticing a trend where more and more people would talk about Bible and scripture. And then they'd say, so like Paul wrote this. Um, And then they'd be like, and everyone has their problems with Paul, or like, I don't read Paul, or Paul's the worst, uh, and kind of notice that trend more and more. And to think, that's a weird relationship to have with someone who wrote a majority of the New Testament. And so anytime we feel like we we hear, we run into things that are really hard or difficult, one of the things here at Cascade that's a value for us is we want to get really curious about the difficult things. We don't want to avoid them. Uh, We don't think there's really any benefit in just avoiding tough things. Well, let's get into it and ask some questions and find out what's going on here. Um, And so that's what kind of spurred on this whole message series. And we talked first about just Paul's life, who Paul was. Uh, Then we looked at how did Paul understand and read the Torah, what we would call the Old Testament, the sacred scriptures that Paul had. Because the rules of engagement for Paul is probably instructive for how we look at this. Um, And then the two messages we've done before is we talked about Paul and women, um, which Harriet did a great job of of bringing to us and a great message for us to consider, um, because that's been very problematic. If you're like, how so? 
Paul's the one that's like, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Women should not speak in church. Um, these kind of scriptures. So we talked about that. What does that look like? Um, as a church with a, a co-pastor who's a female, um, we obviously worked through those <laughs> and say, that we, I don't think that's what it's saying. Uh, we talked about Paul and slavery last week, uh, and then we are, we are concluding the message today with Paul and LGBTQ+. Uh, to that end, uh, in our church and in our statement, we have a policy that we are a church that is open, not just to attend, but all positions of volunteer and leadership are open to people regardless of sexual or gender identities. So for the remainder of this message, if you're hearing this set up and you're a little nervous, um, congratulations, you have some exposure to the evangelical church. Um, <laughs> but know where we're going and kind of know the foundation that frames this all. So let's jump in. Uh, we're going to read, there are three passages in the New Testament. They're kind of known, uh, there's three Old Testament passages. Together they're known as the clobber passages that have been used against the LGBTQ plus um, community. And so we're going to look at the three in the New Testament, which were all written by Paul. Uh, what I want you to do is when I read this first one, I want you to be very present and see how the words strike you. See how they land, see how they feel, and also pay attention to how are you interpreting what Paul is saying. Because we're going to ask some questions about why would we interpret them that way. Does that make sense? Um, and also, with anything, permission to stop listening at any point. Okay, Romans 1, 18 uh, through 27. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is ever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships, relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, as you hear that and read that, kind of paying attention to what's going on with you, uh, this verse might be familiar to you. You might have heard this before. You might have heard it taught on before. You might have heard it used in other ways. Now, one thing that we talk about a lot here that's always worth repeating is that a text, and that's any text, magazine article, a comic, uh, certainly sacred texture, uh, texts. A text without a context, where did it come from and who wrote it, is a pretext for making it say whatever you want. Um, and one of the things that we like to say is anyone who's like, I just read the Bible for what's there. No, you don't. <laughs> it's impossible to do that because you're 
completely disregarding that you have a place that you were born, a culture that you grew up in, and things that were normed for you. Those are influencing how you read and understand things. That's not bad. That doesn't mean we throw out the Bible, but it means for us to get something out of it, we have to understand the context of where it came from. So that leads us to Caligula. Now, from 37 to 41, Gaius Caligula was the emperor of Rome. He was the Caesar there. Uh, And it was, if you're familiar at all with the kind of the reigns of the Caesars, they were incredibly violent and very short. There was a lot of intrigue and murder and death. Um, Yeah, it became, it was like the tabloids and the information of the day. Wars and betrayal were were, uh, a part of the entire operation. And Caligula was one of the most ruthless. He was uh, followed actually by Nero. Um, And if you're familiar with Nero, Nero was famous for using Christians as human torches for parties. Uh, This was also the the time where you had um, gladiators, and you had wild animals for entertainment fighting people or gladiators in these gladiator uh, arenas. Caligula, uh, in particular, uh, a number of things were said about him. First, about um, sex and sexuality, we'll actually read, uh, this is a section from Suetonius, who wrote about the lives of the Caesars, his early history during the time. To leave no kind of plunder untried, he opened a brothel in his palace, setting apart a number of rooms and furnishing them to suit the grandeur of the place, where matrons and freeborn youths should stand exposed. Then he sent his pages about the fora and basilicas to invite young men and old to enjoy themselves, lending money on interest to those who came and having clerks openly take down their names as contributors to Caesar's revenues. So one of the things that happens there is a famine during the time of Caligula, and so he utilized sex as a money-making tool. He was also well-known, as the stories go, that during his dinner parties, he would invite guests, and then he would take wives or husbands of the guests, go to an adjoining room, have sex with them, return to the party, and report to everyone was there what the experience was like for him and for them, how they performed. Um, The story that was shared on the death of Caligula, which is important for the context, is that he was um, having sex and he was stabbed through his genitalia and bled out. Now, historians say, do we know that this is all true or not? We don't. But what we do know is that sex and power were a connected uh, reality during this time. And so any time that there was belief that the, the Caesar was corrupted in their power, the stories would start to spread about their relationship to sex and how they used it and how they engaged in it. So a place, a palace turned into a brothel might be a literal description of what happened, but it would certainly be a description of what power run amok looks like. Make sense? Other thing that would be important to note about Caligula as well, some would say they should be worshiped and venerated as um, the Caesar, as the, the leader, Uh, uh, (laughs) Caligula took it a step further. Uh, This is a quote from Caligula. I have existed from the morning of the world and shall exist until the last star falls from the night. Although I have taken the form of Gaius Caligula, I am all men as I am no man, and therefore I am a god. 
He would appear at religious ceremonies um, dressed up as a god. He would refer to himself as Apollo, as Hercules, as Jupiter. He believed himself to be a god and to be worshipped as such. Now, this is important. Paul, who is a Pharisee, which means he cares a lot about the Jewish religious system and reality, one of the things that Caligula did is he erected a, a statue to himself in worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, so, Jews weren't unfamiliar with Caligula and what he did. They were very familiar with what he did. Okay, so does some of that make some sense of context? Now, let's reread Romans 1, shall we? From the top. Take all that I said and, and understand that going to it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their bodies to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Can you see that within context, Paul's condemnation of a kind of government that exploits sexuality for power, and for money is very different than saying these relationships from two people of the same gender is an abomination from God. That the practice of homosexuality in the time of Caligula was about power and exploitation. And we're going to look at more scriptures that kind of get at that. Um, that this was, so to, to create a one-to-one, -one, oh, this is what Paul is talking about, it's just not present in the text. Uh, we just don't see that that's what Paul was referring to. And from contextual clues, we can see there's other things that would have really mattered for Paul to talk about. The other two passages, uh, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, we're going to look at, and then we're going we're gonna to do some Greek. I know. I get it. <laughs> Again, if you've been to church before, that's like the best pastor trick. Like, let me show you the Greek. <laughs> it matters this time, okay? First, 1 Corinthians 6. Here we go. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you mean you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We'll go back to that in just a second. First Timothy, 
We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So, in the First Corinthians passage, it talked about men who have sex with other men, and in this one, it gets translated to homosexuality. One thing that's worth noting is that homosexuality is a term that doesn't come into existence until the 19th century. So any time we take a word from the 19th century and use it to translate from a word from the first century, we're going to have some issues. Now, every word in the English language was created after Greek, okay? So <laughs> it's not a unique problem to homosexuality. <laughs> but what it does mean is that there can be some translation error, um, and especially a word that's so recent. So... Let's look at these two words. We have arsenikoetai, um, and this is what Gordon Fee, who isn't really a champion of progressive Christianity, says about this word. These words are difficult to translate. This is its first appearance in preserved literature, and subsequent authors are reluctant to use it, especially when describing homosexual activity. Here's why. Paul made up a word. Uh, arsenkiniotai is a new word. It hasn't existed before, and we only see it a couple of other times. Paul does this a lot. He's a smart guy, and he's putting two words together. So this one is the one that's translated, men who have sex with other men. The true translation of it would be men betters. Um, the only other times, and so if you're unfamiliar with like, well, how do we know what the Bible says when we translate it? We have the Bible, but you can't just read the Bible, a whole bunch of words we don't use anymore, and say, oh, we know what this means. You have to use context and pull context from other first century writings. Make sense? So a big way that we inform some of the usage of these words that aren't very, used very often is how are they used in other places. Men betters, this word that Paul seems to have used very early on or invented, is never used to describe sexuality it's always used to, exploit, uh, used to describe exploitation of power. And we're going to talk more about that. If you understand that as an exploitation of power, do you remember how the First Corinthians passage started? You're suing each other. Someone does something wrong and you litigate them and sue them. And we're creating a big mess in our community. And when he puts the list, he's like, you're not this anymore. You're this. This is the power of Christ. All of the other things that are listed in there, it would be an odd inclusion just to be like all these other things and homosexuality. It would make a lot more sense to say the way that you have exploited sexuality for gain, power, or money, that that was formerly who you are and that's not who you are today. The other word that is used in the First Timothy passage that we translate to homosexuality in the NIV, the Malakoi. Ancient sources use this word to describe prepubescent callboys. So, Roman culture. Um, this is, again, where kids in the room, so sorry. Um, or those of sensitive ears. I'm not one to judge. Uh, the way that it worked in the Roman world, someone being a homosexual was not the way that you described who you had sexual relationship with. It was what role in the sexual relationship you had. 
So if you were the one who was the penetrator, you would not be a homosexual. So men in Roman culture would be married, heterosexual men, and they would use prepubescent callboys, young boys who didn't have facial hair, um, and they would have sexual relationships with them. This exploitive practice was not uncommon during this time. That's what the second word is. Now, as far as I know, this is not a practice that any single person in the LGBTQ plus community advocates today. It's not anywhere close to what we're talking about. Now, if we could all get in a time machine, if we could turn this church in a time machine and we could go back and sit with Paul in first century Rome and say, what do you think about the LGBTQ plus community? I don't know what Paul would say. I have no idea. But for a lot of different reasons, I think if you took Paul from first century Rome and you brought him in a time machine here, and he lived in this culture for 10 years, I don't see him condemning the LGBTQ plus community. Why? The entirety of Paul's writing and Paul's letters are about one thing, preserving the church. And what he's trying to address is these are the actions and activities that threaten this whole thing. This is the road to hypocrisy. If we start mixing this with our understanding of Christ, the whole thing's going to fall apart. It was about both of these words, they're dealing with exploitive and transactional definitions for sex. Does that make sense? That's what they're defining and talking about. So, in the evangelical Christian church in America today, the two most hot-button issues that are talked about and kind of known are abortion and LGBTQ+. That's outside of God's best. I think it's interesting that in a majority of evangelical Christian churches, the leadership are people that look like me, white males, white heterosexual males. Those are two issues that really don't seem to do with the leadership of the evangelical church in America, does it? And yet, and yet, have you read the articles about the Southern Baptist Convention this last week? Sexual abuse is rampant in our churches. The Catholic Church has been dealing with this for decades upon decades upon decades. I would think if Paul was here today, he would be writing about that. That's the thing that threatens the Christian church in our world today. That hypocrisy, that misuse of power and exploitation of people, that's what's wrong. When I went to seminary, I was told if I ever have an affair in the church setting, as a pastor, it's your fault. Why? Because you have to recognize the power dynamics of the room and the environment that you're in. I would say any pastor that has an affair is misusing their power, and I think we have evidence that Paul would say the same thing. These are the deep issues that I think are worth addressing. These are the things that are worth talking about. So, with all of that, like I said, we're going to tran transition. Because people, we can talk about Greek all day. That'd be great. Let's go have fun. Potluck. Greek, 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 Greek. We'll talk about context and Rome. It will be fun for at least one of us. But <laughs> theology and understanding, and this is what it looks like, we have no demonstration that for either Paul or for Jesus, 
it was something they cared that much about. They only cared about it in as much as it actually impacted real human being lives and how we lived and worked with one another. So um, I've asked and I'm excited to have my friends Bree and Beckett Hannon, who are a queer couple, are going to come up and they're going to talk about and share their experience in the church with these. So would you welcome Bree and Beckett? We'll let you get set. So, Brian Beckett, as you get set, I'd love for you to be like tell us a little bit about yourselves, um, and then kind of leading into how did this theology, uh, how did it impact you growing up? Stools. <laughs> if you can't tell, we're pretty short. So <laughs> this is a challenge. Um, I'm Bree, and this is my Bree. husband, Beckett. Yep, that's me. Yep. We're a queer couple. Um, we have been in the Portland area for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Austin. We grew up in Delaware. Mm -hmm. Not Delaware, Ohio, the state. Yeah, there's a, a state thing. called Delaware, just in case <laughs> anyone was wondering. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've known Kurt for most of the time I think we've been in Portland, so probably like a year and a half. Um, we come to Cascade kind of sporadically when we wake up early enough and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah. We're really excited to have this conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, Bree, do you want to start with just, like, kind of how this this theology kind of impacted us growing up? Yeah. Um, so when I was, like, 10, I remember reading the Romans 1 passage that we started with just on my own and reading the part where it says that they received in their bodies the due penalty for their sins. And as a little 10-year-old, I was like, Oh, that's AIDS. That makes sense to me. And um, I, I mean, what does that say about where my mind must have been and, like, the culture that I was being raised in that a little 10-year-old kid who believes in a loving God, who believes that God is good and kind and a loving father would give someone what I perceive to be the most scary and shameful disease as a punishment for something. I, like, the, everything around me was telling me homosexuality is so dirty and gross and evil and shameful that that didn't strike me as weird. I was like, yeah, of course God would do that. Yeah, I remember my mom was kind of a lay counselor, so she would pray with a lot of people, often from our church, and help them work through stuff. And I remember one of the stories she told me being like, oh, yeah, we, you know, someone prayed with this gay guy and delivered him of his demons, essentially. It was kind of a deliverance situation. And his voice immediately, like, got lower, and he didn't have this high voice anymore. And that was obviously something that was supposed to be celebrated. It was this amazing, exciting thing. And it was like, oh, obviously it worked. There we go, you know. And it's interesting because neither of us, you know, we've talked about it a lot. Neither of us remember any pastor ever actually getting up and saying, being gay is a sin. We both grew up in the church from when we were born, you know, getting saved as, a like, little kids. A lot of people have stories of, like, hearing a, you know, fire and brimstone kind of message about the homosexuals and stuff. And we, we, right. we never even encountered that. But it was still just so saturated in the culture that it was like we didn't even need to ask. Yeah. Like, it was just so obvious. And when we did start to ask questions, um, it suddenly became very clear that, oh, people don't want to talk about it. 
It's not just, you know, there was, there was some kind of feeling of, well, it's so obvious that it's wrong. Why, we don't need to have this conversation. Why would we even spend a Sunday talking about this? You know, everybody knows. But as we kind of dug deeper, we realized people are terrified to ask questions about this. You know, it's like, and for a lot of people, that was personal. Um, they had their own journeys that were very private, that they were very ashamed of, regardless of how, you know, what the end result was. It was just like, this is a terrifying conversation to have. Um, and, yeah, it's really interesting because the, there's this basic narrative that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, but if you're not, it's essentially you're attracted to someone of the same gender, you are completely overcome by lust, you have no self-control, and then God gives up on you. You lose all ability to, to tell right from wrong, right? You don't have a conscience anymore, and you don't have self-control, and, you know, then you sleep around and die and burn in hell, and that's about it, you know. And the only hope, really, is maybe getting delivered, you know, some kind of exorcism deal, or maybe Jesus appears to you in your room kind of deal, you know, if you're extra special. And otherwise, you're screwed. That's it. Mm -hmm. yeah. The way that these verses that we're going over kind of take shape in our culture is through this narrative, this yeah. story that we tell about like who gay people are and what they're like. And the story is something like, you know, gay people are people that are out there. There's no gay people here. We're all straight people here. And um, they're out there and they're, they're slimy and gross and scary. And they, they know deep down that what they're doing is wrong. And they feel all this shame. And like, we keep telling the story. And um, the, I think that that narrative is part of the reason why people freak out so much when somebody comes out and um, that's around them because a lot of time we don't fit that narrative. We're not slimy and scary. We're confident and filled with the Holy Spirit or we are part of the family. And it's just like that doesn't fit the story we've been telling and that like makes our brains break a little bit and we're, we freak out, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important to, to tune into any degree within Christianity specifically any degree of othering language is not something that Christians ever engage in. It's not a part of the story from the beginning. God and Christ are always, Paul was over and again saying, you think these are two different categories? They're actually one. And so to tune in to any language that's excluding others, outsiders, is just not something that we do in the church. So with that said, I'm in fact interested, so what happened when you came out and you started dating? Yeah, so it was kind of interesting because as we started to explore this, for both of us, it was something that didn't come until we were a bit older. We were best friends for six years, and we didn't realize that we were in love because when we looked at our relationship, it didn't look slimy and scary. Yeah. It, like, well, we're not gross, yeah. so I guess we're not gay. If gay is... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so logic. It was like six years before we started to even be like, wait a minute, what if this love thing is actually like love, love? Like, what if we're in love? You know? Yeah, and I think it was, you know, there was definitely this fear because we met at a an unaccredited charismatic Bible school, Bethel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, we grew up in church. And we went to Bible school, and we were like, we're going to do this ministry thing, and we're going to, you know, we're going to win at life and do the whole the things you're supposed to do as a good Christian. Really successful Christian, actually. Extra special. Yeah. So worship pastor was my career path. Yeah. That was my yeah. plan. And mom. And mom, yeah. Of course. Doesn't pay as well. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's like, 
I think in the back of our minds, we knew, and, and it was almost worse because we didn't know what the consequences would be if we actually realized we were in love, but we knew it wouldn't be okay. We knew that we'd lose everything. We knew that this whole, all the work that we had done, all of the investing in this you know, career path of being a successful Christian, uh, it was just all gonna fall apart. And you kind of mentioned yesterday too, it's like if we had gotten too close, there was that risk that we'd lose the relationship entirely. Yeah, because the most important thing to me in my life was this relationship. Like Beckett was the most important person in my world. And so the thought of anything jeopardizing our connection or our friendship was just like terrifying to me. So because the aspect of us being in love seemed like a threat to our connection, because then maybe it would end up being like, oh, I, I have sex, I'm experiencing sexual whatever towards you, now we cannot be friends. And you know, it could get between us. So I was afraid to even look at it. Yeah, especially because we were, you know, we'd already kind of decided we were gonna do life together forever, raise kids together. But with our husbands, obviously. Oh, yeah. We were like, maybe we'll live next door to each other. Yeah. Like, how I'll close can we be before things get weird exactly. is our question. Exactly. And for me, I'm trans. I'm non-binary. And I, you know, several years before I realized that, I, was, I would spend days just watching YouTube videos of trans people's stories and doing research. And then I would completely forget that any of it had happened. And the only way that I know I would do that like at probably every six months or so for years was because my friends are like, no, I remember. I remember seeing you watch these videos. And so I went back in my YouTube history and I see this stuff. And I see old journal entries about it where I'm like, I think I'm experiencing dysphoria. I think this might be what this feels like. And I literally wrote, it's not safe to process this. And I don't remember writing that. Some hardcore repression. <laughs> yes. So when we came out, we weren't at this school anymore. We were just kind of on our own, just had a couple friends around. We weren't living in the same place. I mean, we, have, we had moved yep. to Ireland together and then to Austin. We were living at Austin, in Austin at the time. Yeah, and we came out on Facebook. We said we were in a relationship. We kind of just told our parents and stuff before that. The way we came out was just a, we're in a relationship post on Facebook. You yeah. know, how, how you do that, yeah. as one does. <laughs> and someone on staff at this school started making live videos about us to his thousands of followers. Um, talking about how we were in sin and we were rejecting all of the... A staff pastor. Yeah. Um, making posts about us. Uh, someone that was the main worship pastor at the church was like, good on you, this is an epidemic in the church. Other pastors were commenting as well, saying this is what needs to happen. Um, we had someone that I know from my old church be like, I want to watch y'all do it when we said we were getting engaged on the post. Um, and the couple main pastors, there were a couple things that they, you know, we had friends be like, we're weeping over you, and we're like, okay, that's gross. This is um, the <laughs> most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. Why are you crying? Yeah. That's kind of disgusting. Yeah. And some of the things that they said, they suddenly got very vocally anti-gay right after we came out. The, the church at large, mm -hmm. or the, the church we were part of. Yeah. And a couple of the things they said, and this just kind of shows how these verses have translated into a narrative because of the most recent English translations of them into a narrative that a pastor can get up and preach on a Sunday and people go, yeah, makes sense. Um, saying things like, you know, well, when you're gay, your character is atrophied so much that you have no conscience, no self-control. Uh, you have a depraved mind and your attraction is a violation of God's design for you. Um, this is basically the same as rape and murder. So, you know, if you were rapist or murder, it's all the same thing, really. Um, and, and, of course, the classic pedophile connection, like, comparison. Yeah. And they were basically like, you should just be listening to us. You know, you don't know yourself enough to know that this is wrong for you. 
So you really need to just trust us, even though we don't actually have a relationship, because this is a mega church, and just believe what we're saying about you. This is called gaslighting. In case that's not clear. And we looked up to and trusted these people. We went there for school. We did all three years of school. We worked there. I was on staff for five years serving yeah. these people. And it's like, and we considered them family. And so we wrote a letter and we were like, hey, this really isn't very nice. It's kind of disrespectful, pretty dehumanizing. And I mean, I had a lot of hope because they weren't staying true to their own values. Yeah. And so I was just, you know, when we wrote the letter, we were just trying to remind them of that. Like, hey, you taught us that you don't have to agree to be family. Mm -hmm. But here you're saying that we're no longer a part of the body of Christ because of blah, blah, blah. Our Holy Spirit can't reach us because of this aspect. And that's not what you said. That's not what you taught us. Yeah. And it's like, the, a lot of people don't know this, but half of LGBTQ plus people in the U.S. and in Australia, they're the two statistics that I found so far, identify as Christians. And yet there's this false dichotomy that we hear, you can be gay or you can be Christian. Mm-hmm. And so if half of the queer community are Christians, and this is what they're hearing from their family, from their faith community, and we're gonna get into a couple statistics in a minute, but for one of them, it's like for LGBTQ plus youth, when their religion is important to them, which in most cases means it's Christianity because of statistics, they are more likely to attempt suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a great, that's a great uh, transition. So yeah. talk about a little bit the broader impact. Yeah, so we have several friends, like as a direct result of this kind of theology that is, that is non-affirming, you know, that looks at these verses and very different from what Kurt is saying is like, yep, it's pretty clear. You're gay, you're going to hell, got to fix that, or that's, that's the only option really. We have friends that have very seriously contemplated suicide after messages that they've heard from people from the church that we went to. Uh, I have a friend that's attempted suicide twice because of his family. He went to a conversion therapy camp for several years. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to try and stop him from being gay. And, you know, this is very real for us. And not just that, but it expands to a much broader community. And we're going to hit a couple statistics today. Um, We're going to talk about youth in particular. Um, I think that's just because they're the most vulnerable. Um, You know, we when we wrote that letter um, and when we kind of spoke out against a lot of the stuff that was happening, the main people we're thinking about is youth because they don't often have a choice what church they're going to. They're just there. They're with their family. They might not even really be thinking about it. Um, Children are kind of assumed straight until proven otherwise in our culture, which yeah. is not cool because you you have, you know, especially with this generation, what is it, like one in seven yeah. youth are, are queer or mm-hmm. I, 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 like identify as queer mm-hmm. and so it's like if you know more than seven children <laughs> mm-hmm. you know you know some queer kids yeah and um, yeah so there's a couple things um, one is that LGBT youth high rejection specifically from your family as a queer youth means you are eight times more likely to attempt suicide I just want to sit with that for a second. Because when your family accepts you, your mental health is pretty standard. You might experience some bullying at school and things like that that will affect it. But just having the basic family acceptance is one of the biggest factors to protect these kids from stuff like that. Side note, so many people point to the high suicide rates of you know, gay Any people or, or yeah. gay kids, queer people, 
to say, see, that's how we know that it's bad for you to be gay. You yeah. shouldn't do it. But it's literally when they have support, the suicide rates are about even with the cis and straight community. Yeah. So the problem isn't that they're gay. The problem is that, you know. People are gross. People are gross. <laughs> um, they also have, they are six times as likely to be severely depressed. They are three times as likely to use illegal drugs or to contract HIV or another STI by the time they're about 20. And something that's not in here as well is a lot of the LGBTQ plus youth community as teenagers are way overrepresented in the homeless community. And that's because today in 2019, it's still pretty normal for a parent to kick their kid out of the home before they've turned 18 because they come out to them. Saying, you're not in our family anymore. You're not my kid. I'm not responsible for you anymore. I don't need to take care of you. I don't need to feed you. I don't need to house you. That's, that's over. Something that's really interesting to me as well is when trans youth are able to use their chosen name. It's just one piece of the whole thing. Um, they kind of measured four different areas at school, at home, with um, friends and then at work if they have a job. And for each place they're able to use that name, their risk of depression and risk of suicide drops significantly. Uh, the third one is for gay and lesbian youth, the more they care about their faith, the more likely they are to consider suicide. This is most drastic for questioning youth. So the thing we don't talk about a lot is that a lot of youth are in this place of questioning their sexuality and gender identity. Brie works with youth, and most of them are like... I hang out with queer middle schoolers <laughs> once a week. It is so fun. And most of them, you know, you go around, you do check-in, and everyone shares where they, they're at They get week. an opportunity to say, like, their name and pronouns and gender identity and, um, you know, sex sexual orientation and whatever they want to. They can skip anything that they don't want to say or don't know yet. But most of the time, they're like... Hey, my name is this, my pronouns are this, um, my sexual orientation is that pew, my <laughs> gender expression is that cool rainbow sweater, <laughs> and then they, like, move on, because they're just, like, this gender is not a thing, it's not, like, real, it's a thing to, like, play with and explore, and I love it, it's so inspiring. Yeah, and so it's, like, when you think about a youth that's questioning, that cares about their faith, the vast majority of those kids are Christians in Christian families. And the more important their faith is to them on a spectrum, the more likely they are to consider suicide. And what I think something that's really important to highlight with that is that even for kids, they're working to reconcile their faith and their identity. And as they're exploring their identity, often you'll hear this story of basically like, well, I can't be gay because God won't love me. Or I can't be gay because I won't have a family anymore. A lot of kids, before they come out to their parents, will pack a bag even if they're pretty sure they're gonna be okay, because it's that common. That's like, I don't know my parents. My parents surprised me when I came out, you know? It's, it's, it just happens. And the last thing that is really interesting, they tracked every single state as they legalized gay marriage across the US, and every single time a state legalized it, the rate of suicide attempts for youth dropped significantly and permanently. Is that like specifically to queer youth or youth in general? Just in general, because they don't even need to track what it is necessarily. They know that this is a thing for queer youth as well. But then when we legalized it across the US at this point, based on each permanent drop that they tracked in the general population of youth, that means 134,000 children every year are not attempting suicide. And when you hear adults sit around and talk about, well, the sanctity of marriage and la la la, a lot of these people would identify as pro-life, and yet kids are killing themselves 
because they don't have any hope because they look at a world and say, when I grow up, everything's going to suck. And it's like, there's no point being alive. It's that hopeless for them. And when they see that there might be hope, that people might say, you can love who you want to love. And that's okay. They're like, maybe it's worth living. And as you are sitting here and you're hearing this, if you're like, hey, this is so different from my experience. I don't understand this conversation about gender. I understand this, this thing about sexuality. I've always been attracted to the opposite gender. And like, this doesn't make any sense to me. As we talked when we met, congratulations, you're straight. <laughs> Consider this your coming out party. Um, but can you take the certainty with which you know that about yourself and can you translate that reality to someone whose experience is different with that exact same certainty and resolve? If you can, then maybe we can learn more about who one another is. One of the most kind of painful things that I've heard um, is that hey, homosexuality, it's not like, it's not any worse than any other sin. It's just a sin. Um, this is a sin. Suicide and depression and putting these heavy burdens on people, that's a sin, and that's a corporate sin that we can actually take responsibility for as the church, not waiting for someone else, but for us to start here in this place to say we take full responsibility for this, and this is something that we care about, and this is something that we're going to put ourselves towards because a clear definition of sin is how it inhibits God's peaceful thriving for all people to move in the world. You can think that as a concept, but come tell me after hanging out with Brian Beckett that that's true. If you need it to be anonymous to be true, it's not true. It's not true. Whew, okay. Let's stand up, huh? Would you thank Brian? Okay. May you go and know that God is forever for us and with us. And there is injustice for us to stand up against. But love is not one of those injustices. Amen and amen. Let's go have a potluck.